Welcome, market participants, to another Three Things in Credit. I'm Van Hesser, Chief Strategist at KBRA. Each week, we bring you three things impacting credit markets that we think you should know about. Those of you that tune in regularly will know that oddities and data, like two different surveys for unemployment and two different measures of economic growth, GDP and GDI, drive me crazy. This week, I stumbled upon this little nugget from our good friends over at Deutsche Bank. If you use the European methodology for calculating CPI in the U.S., CPI would be 1.7% today, not 3.2%. Turns out European calculations don't include owner-occupied housing costs. But both the U.S. and the ECB and the Bank of England all target 2%, a target pulled out of the air decades ago by New Zealanders. Yep, tax dollars at work. All right, this week our three things are, one, the end of the hiking cycle. What typically happens? Two, the oil spike. We'll explore its outsized impact on sentiment. And three, bank risk. Just how much is there? All right, let's dig a bit deeper. End of the hiking cycle. All right, we're kind of there. Okay, the August CPI report might have leaned a touch toward the warm side of things, and markets are now suggesting a 50-50 prospect of one more 25 basis point hike this year in either the September, November, or December FOMC meetings. In any event, the last hike is in sight. The Fed's been at this since March of 2022, and yes, at the end of the day, Bill Dudley was right. The central bank had to jack rates to levels that were nearly unthinkable at the time in order to be sufficiently restrictive. So now what happens? Well, a couple of things have crossed our mind. One, credit spreads tend to hit their highest point in the credit cycle at the last hike. Many may find that surprising, given all the talk around an impending recession over the course of a Fed hiking cycle. But spreads historically widen after the last hike. Talk of a soft landing in most hiking cycles is probably what keeps the investor bid for credit strong, especially investment-grade credit, up until that last hike. As one of our favorite financial columnists, Greg Ipp, over at the Wall Street Journal said this past week, every recession starts out looking like a soft landing. Here's another useful mile marker related to the first one. The trough in economic growth happens after the last rate hike. Again, this makes sense once you think through it. Presumably, if the Fed is hiking, the economy is running hot, or at least hotter than desired. Once the Fed reaches what it deems to be restrictive, it stops hiking. Those long and variable lags continue to bite, and growth is restrained. That implies that we have six to nine months of tougher economic sledding ahead of us. Now, this is not to suggest we think credit will fall out of bed, in fact, just the opposite. When we merely have headwinds and not a shock, as is the case in this downturn, growth slows in an orderly way. That means the weakest and most complex parts of the market underperform, while investment grade retains a strong bid as a safe haven. We would also remind listeners that markets, ever forward-looking, will move ahead of the economic data. Something to keep in mind as we navigate that sledding. All right, on to our second thing, oil spike. It's back. The price of crude is rising. One observer characterized the move as economic equivalent of a Mike Tyson punch in the face. It kind of came out of nowhere and it leaves a mark on investor sentiment, CEO decision-making, and central bankers. Oil marches largely to the beat of its own drummers, usually the states that are producers. The volatility that bedevils investors comes from the fact that most oil production comes from state-owned enterprises where supply is highly politicized. Think OPEC Plus 
the 23 countries that in the aggregate produce some 59% of oil. Unexpected production cuts from Saudi Arabia and Russia are largely responsible for the most recent price rise, which is now 31% in WTI and 27% in Brent from June lows. How the price of oil affects credit can vary. A drop in the price of oil is clearly beneficial to consumers and businesses, except, of course, to energy firms. But as we saw back in 2014 and 15, global slowdown, or at the outbreak of COVID, a drop in the price of oil can signal slowing global economic growth. As the price of oil fell in those episodes, spreads widened. But that's not always the case. In 2022's inflation scare, which brought with it expectations for a global slowdown, the price of oil fell, but spreads tightened. I guess the takeaway is there's a lot going into that global growth story, and the price of oil is just one piece of it. But to be clear, rising oil into a slowdown is not welcome news, broadly speaking, any more than rising rates is. Currently, we have both. That means a tax on consumers, margin pressure on businesses, rising geopolitical risk and noise. And none of that is good for credit. Industries most affected are aviation. It didn't take long for airlines to issue earnings warnings. Shipping and chemicals, which are all directly impacted. Food, travel, and hospitality figure to be impacted by second-order effects. And finally, there is the issue of how a central banker might incorporate higher oil into their decision-making. With higher oil bleeding into headline inflation, does that suggest a more hawkish approach? Or will central bankers see higher oil more dovishly, as in, it will cool demand, so therefore, all other things being equal, I have less reason to drive higher the cost of money. I lean toward the latter, especially with regard to Europe, which is more vulnerable to higher energy costs and is starting with a less robust growth dynamic. Time will tell, but let's hope for a warm winter. All right, on to our third thing, banks. One of the most important bank investor conferences of the year is wrapping up over at Barclays, and the stakes haven't been this high in quite some time. The reason, of course, is that the industry is still bearing the scars from the second, third, and fourth largest U.S. bank failures in history that happened back in the spring. Those failures, though highly idiosyncratic, did highlight four things that have undermined investor confidence in the sector. Namely, one, the heightened competition for funding as a result of the Fed's interest rate hikes. Two, the risk to the stickiness of deposit funding as a result of technological developments. Three, the weakness in regulatory supervision. And four, the additional costs that are sure to come as a result of regulatory reform. And taken together, these are part of the reason why bank stocks and credit have repriced relative to industrial sectors. The other part surely has to do with concern in general about where we are in the credit cycle, i.e. the phase where uncertainty over bad debt costs is at its peak, and more specifically, concern over the impact of commercial real estate's revaluation. That sure sounds like a lot. But keep in mind, bank earnings and profitability are just off of record levels. Problem loans and loan losses, while rising, are low by historical standards. Now, if you've been paying attention, you know that the growth trough in this cycle is in front of us. But we are highly confident that the economy is not expected to fall off a cliff, as was the case back in 2008, just prior to the GFC. There simply is not the level of distortion or imbalance today in the global economy that there was back then. So bank fundamentals, in the aggregate, just don't feel nearly as vulnerable as was the case back then. Now, since the March events, the total return of the larger bank stocks, those in the KBW Bank Index, 
is down 24% compared to the S&P 500's plus 11% and the equal weighted S&P 500's 0%. The banks trade at roughly half the forward earnings multiple of the equal weighted S&P 500. Bank spreads, which traded at or around industrial levels prior to March, now trade 22 basis points back. Given all I've highlighted as risks, that might make sense. But for the larger banks, most of those risks really aren't all that significant, especially to creditors. Sure, Jamie Dimon can rail against proposed hiking by regulators of capital levels by declaring, as he did in the Wall Street Journal, that all loans are bad from a capital charge standpoint. But the far more important risk element is the one that banks have going their way. The fact that credit losses, especially at the largest banks, are not expected to get unwieldy in this cycle. We like the large banks in here. So there you have it. Three things in credit. One, the end of the hiking cycle. This is where credit deterioration happens. Two, the oil spike. It's unwelcome, especially in a slowing growth environment. And three, bank risk. For creditors, it's a tempest in a teapot. As always, thanks for joining. Don't forget to check in on KBRA.com for our ratings reports and our latest research. We'll see you next week. Hello, listeners. Join me, Van Hesser, KBRA's chief strategist for in-depth conversations with credit experts in my new monthly podcast, Leading Voices in Credit, where I'll interview market professionals on the latest trends in credit markets. That's Leading Voices in Credit with Van Hesser. Subscribe now.